The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. Welcome to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series brings men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s to discuss food, housing, climate, and health. Our guests are problem solvers, solution makers. Learn what their contributions and experiences were and are, their challenges, and their successes. Our goal is to spark your discussions among and between generations to inspire action toward a healthy and secure future for all. For our second season, we're going to meet people with workable solutions who address the many challenges to our health and security due to extremes of weather, loss of habitat, and loss of biodiversity. The guests in this series live and work all over the country. Their projects range in scope from local to international. They are innovators and implementers, founders and institutionalizers. You'll hear current and evolving ideas and actions for creating environments where we can all live well into the future. In this episode, we have guests of different generations but common interests. Their paths have crossed, but they don't necessarily work together. Through them, you'll learn more about the concepts of biomimicry and biophilia that you learned about in episode 11 on innovative housing techniques. You'll see how those principles, as well as living system design, cradle-to-cradle systems, and carbon sequestration are being used. We'll touch on their movement from fringe to mainstream, their evolution from doing no harm to enhancing the environment, their promotion by multiple organizations and adoption by major corporations and sovereign nations. Our guests... Kathy Zarsky and Kate Sector will provide us with numerous examples of techniques for building sustainable and resilient designs for people and the planet. Kate will even help us predict the future. Our first guest, Kathy Zarsky, trained as an architect at University of Texas at Austin and is one of the world's first trained biomimicry specialists through Biomimicry 3.8. Biomimicry 3.8 is a consulting firm co-founded by Janine Benyus, who named and developed the concept. Her book, Biomimicry Inspired by Nature, published in 1997, started its evolution. Kathy founded Biomimicry Texas and Holis Collaborative Consulting Firm. Kathy, how did you get interested in sustainability? My interest in sustainability goes back to my days in architecture school where I was part of a fringe group of students trying to embed more of these ideas into the design that we pursued in that setting. And once I got out of school, the opportunities to really practice anything in any robust way or find professional colleagues to engage with was 
few and far between. But when Austin launched the Austin Green Building Program that ultimately inspired LEAD, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, which is now an international rating system, its focus was around the building. The first tenant that was explored was around energy efficiency. That was the the trademark set of strategies, or at least the objective was energy efficiency and all of the various strategies that would help to maximize energy efficiency and water efficiency. Conservation was part of the rating, as were several other things, but energy efficiency was the first calling card for the adoption of these rating systems. A lot of cities were starting to develop policies and so forth. And so there was a lot of hand-in-hand work with the evolution of those things. But as LEED evolved, it became more well-rounded to really weight many more facets of buildings into its purview. So that included the sourcing and recycling of materials, the health of materials, the way that we report on the, the manufacturing of these materials, indoor air quality, just a whole wide range of things. It wasn't just about the materials, but the way mechanical systems handle things, lighting of the buildings and getting as much daylighting into the building. Much more encompassing suite of practices still evolving today. It's it's embedded a very good feedback loop with its engaged members to constantly build and improve the program. One of the newest conversations is around getting clients to enroll whole portfolios of projects. So thinking about scaling across portfolios of buildings that a lot of clients have, and what does that mean? LEED certification can be obtained for residential and commercial structures as well as whole communities. It's administered by the U.S. Green Building Council. A link to their website will be found in our show notes. Kathy, can you tell us about Biomimicry Texas? How did you come to found it and how has it evolved? So I founded Biomimicry Texas in 2011. I was on the verge of completing my biomimicry specialist training and I had gone through two very immersive training programs at this point and was very excited to help other people become familiar that this methodology was out there and be someone that could guide them to reimagining the world that they lived in and all of the wonder and opportunity that it held that we were walking over and walking by every day. I had a major shift in my own observation skills and the perspective that it lent to how I was able to think about design, behaviors, a whole slew of different things. And so Biomimicry Texas initially was conceived to be a place to spread the meme of biomimicry. Biomimicry Texas launched with a splash. We had a very huge launch event where we were at South by Southwest and one of the featured panel slots filled a ballroom. It lent the position that we had here quite a bit of credibility right away. Austin became the epicenter for Biomimicry Texas because of the the fervor that we had initiated in this area. Our second guest is Kate Sector, Design Performance Manager at Lake Flato Architects. Kate graduated from the University of Colorado Boulder with a bachelor's degree in environmental design and a certificate of renewable and sustainable energy. She is the current chair of the AIA Committee on the Environment, San Antonio chapter. In October of 22, she 
organized a workshop for that organization at which Kathy Zarsky was a speaker. Kate Sector, you graduated from University of Colorado Boulder and have a degree in environmental design. What inspired you to go down that path? I actually was first exposed to the idea of sustainability and environmental design in high school when we were asked to do, I think it was just a passive house of sorts. Maybe it was net zero, but it was the first time that I had really been exposed to the idea that a building could be more than just a building, that it was this sort of living, breathing thing that had these different systems and ways that it could respond to the environment. And it was the first time that I was really exposed to those ideas. And I immediately latched onto it. I thought it was such a great concept. And I had always thought of architecture as just aesthetics and something fun to look at experience, but it was it's just so much more than that. And so thanks to that teacher in high school, I decided that is what I wanted to pursue when I went to college. I didn't want to just do architecture. I wanted to focus on sustainability and how architecture could have a positive impact on people and the environment. And so I essentially ended up at CU Boulder Environmental Design Program because of that passion that they demonstrated to me. It's a multidisciplinary program meaning that we didn't just cover architecture, but you learned about landscape architecture, urban planning, and they now have a product design program. You are now design performance manager at Lake Flato. How long have you been at Lake Flato? I've been there for about three and a half years now. I started as an intern and then made my way into full time. We're going to be speaking more with Kate about her work on sustainability in a few minutes. But first, we'll hear from Kathy Zarsky. Could you explain the concepts of biomimicry and biophilia that we're going to be talking about? A real quick explanation of what biomimicry and biophilia are, so I can maybe touch on living system design. So biophilia refers to our innate love and longing of nature in our lives. We're animals. We evolved in nature and have circadian rhythms that are adapted to the rise and the setting of the sun, to the way light is cast through trees and other vegetation casting long shadows, to the sounds and the harmonies of nature that signal to us the health and vitality of system or the harms and the risks present in nature. The trickling of water is one of the most soothing sounds that we that we can think of. It's actually scientifically proven to be one of the most healthy sounds that we gravitate towards as opposed to the rush of a really kind of violent waterfall that signals that there's risk and danger involved in being too close to this. We know that it's a source of available water to sustain us, but not in that state. A trickling stream is approachable and we can access the water. And other animals that we might hunt that are also depending on the water. Just the qualities of nature that we have evolved with and all of the associations that we have with them sensorily as well. So it's the feels, it's the smells, it's the look. It's uh, all of these kinds of things, integrating those elements back in. Biomimicry touches on this. It starts from a place of, of observance of the natural world, but looking at it more deeply to what are the strategies? Why is nature designed the way that it is? How did it come to be? 
that this leaf is fuzzy and this leaf is waxy and slick. What is that about? What is the difference in these leaves and what are they trying to do and why? Why does this design matter? And really exploring nature with a deep sense of curiosity and reverence to try to answer a lot of these questions because we actually have a lot of the same challenges in our own design work. We're trying to repel water. We're trying to keep surfaces clean. We are trying to regulate temperatures. We're trying to do all of these things. And there's no library that we could ever create that would ever stack up against this library of design strategies found in nature. And so it's the unlocking of these. We often refer to them as recipes because a lot of times it's a lot of different things that come together in very elegant solutions. And one one design strategy typically unlocks a number of other strategies as well, because nature has to optimize to do a lot of things very beautifully. The Earth has had 3.8 billion years of evolution, and so it's hard to look at these things in isolation. I think what I'm hearing you say is that there is this integration. What we're learning is not only the technique, but how it's embedded in other systems within systems. Is that it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when we talk about living systems design, to go back to your original question, biomimicry does not necessitate that we are actually using literal nature to bring into our designs to solve our challenges. It's really looking at them to spur our own approach to innovate, to be more like nature. And we have a number of principles that we use to try to test whether or not we're living up to these life-giving conditions that that nature's designs provide. But living systems design is the actual use of natural nature-based systems in our designs to accomplish a number of things. Kathy has been working with a developer and his team on designing a 46-story tower in downtown Austin, Texas. A link to their project under development called Perennial will be found in our show notes. This design that I'm referring to in Austin, the predominant motivation for using living systems design was to presence nature in the proximity of humans working in urban settings devoid of nature, especially as we go up in elevation, right? We aren't typically bringing nature up with us as we go up in height. This building actually did that. One of the challenges when you are in tall urban-based buildings is that nature is so far away. Once you do establish a view, you don't really get a good sense of it. You might be able to see the hilltops and things like this, or if you're in Denver, you might be able to see the mountains, but you don't actually see the flowers. You don't actually see the animals interacting with the nature. It's so far away that all of the nuance is gone. So this is actually presencing nature within arm's reach of people. But the opportunity was, well, if we are going to introduce all of this nature back into our project, nature as it exists in undisturbed states is accomplishing so many more things. How can we start to think about all of the different benefits that nature can bring to this building? How can we think about the way that it can attenuate sound? How can we think about the way that it can improve the air quality? How can we think about the types of vegetation that will actually alter the way the wind is interacting with the building to create more comfortable spaces? Be much more intentional and research-based around the placement of certain things, because we know that the building is going to have a lot of dynamic interactions with wind and rain and, and the elements. How can we think about the way that it alters microclimates at the street and on the balconies so that 
we don't just assume that they're comfortable, but we've actually really gone above and beyond to do our best to design for comfort. How can we create buildings that are habitat for more than people? Can you give us a specific example of how this kind of living system design could solve the problem of air moving around the building? It becomes a part of the solution set because there are many things integrating together. Buildings are comprised of many different design elements and the living system being one very visible feature of this building. But thinking about if we know that we need some kind of a windbreak to dampen wind as it moves around a corner at a particular time of year, at a particular time of day, what might those wind dampening elements be? It doesn't have to be nature, but the strategy that we're trying to think through is how to dampen the wind. Not necessarily stop it because we still want a breeze to be able to carry around. We don't want to create a dead spot at another time of the year when now we've created an uncomfortable spot. So it's really about dampening and maybe it isn't permanently affixed, right? So it has some flexibility to what the design is. And so living systems are one way to begin to explore a strategy to dampen the wind in a way that is adaptable and variable. A lot of trees have deciduous leaves, and so they're going to drop and you're going to have greater air penetration at some. So maybe that's the wrong solution versus versus a composition of plants of different heights that do different things in different conditions. And exactly where are they placed? We also don't want to create other problems because vegetation is getting blasted so much that it blows off the buildings. So we're looking at a variety of these things, and it really is optimized is a word we use a lot in biomimicry practice because If we get so myopic on one particular design strategy for one particular solution, we're going to overlook the myriad of other things associated with that strategy and all of the other kinds of conditions that are created by putting that one strategy in place. So it really does require a very holistic view to contextualize every last little thing, which actually enhances the design integration for the project as well. It doesn't become just the role of the landscape architect to figure out how to do this. We really have to work now with a structural engineer, which might not be the most common kind of conversation to have, right? Between these two disciplines or the glazing designer. So we're looking at the the reflective properties of the glass or the heat being generated off the facade. Really rich conversations. Can you give us an example of the way, in fact, you start those conversations on how to reduce the effects of climate change, reverse habitat loss, and loss of biodiversity going forward? I did want to share one example of how I try to talk to my clients that might initially approach me with an interest in one particular view of sustainability and how to open it up to the opportunities that it presents to see what something else might might offer. And so one of those examples is just biophilia and the use of beautiful materials in our projects is something that any good designer is going to try to do. Like we want to surround ourselves with beauty and anything that is beautiful typically acquires some degree of success. But if we look at a beautiful pattern that we might find in nature, we can bring it into a project as a flat two-dimensional kind of surface so that we have some visual pleasure from that pattern. But if we know that it's a pattern that exists in nature with some depth, and it's really more of a three-dimensional type of pattern, exploring what purpose that pattern really exists for and what its properties are and embedding more of that in our design can actually 
not only give us the same kind of visual pleasure that we have, but add more dimension to the experience that we might have in that project. So it might be something as simple as textured bark. We often see wallpapers and things like this that are trying to look a lot like bark. But if we actually use something that simulates the patterns and the ridges of bark, now it becomes something that actually attracts us to want to touch it. It's an irresistible surface, right? To walk past. It's a very touchable haptic kind of experience, but it's also interacting with all of the energy in the space. So it's interacting with light and it's creating shadows. It will change over the course of the day. And so you'll notice different things about it. It can, it can evoke a lot of wonder just simply by how it interacts with the light, but it's also going to be interacting with temperature. Um, it's going to be interacting with sound. It will change the quality of those kinds of things in a space. And there are so many different types of patterns. The pufferfish nest was just one of those. It's a beautiful thing that we like to talk about. How ingenious is pufferfish has made this thing, but it's interacting with the energy and the flows of water in that system. And that's what's really ingenious about it. And so if we want to mimic that kind of thing, let's think about what the material property should be, how dense, how porous, what scale, really make it come to life, so to speak. That's the beauty. That's the wonderful. That's, that's designing the way nature would. You just organized a workshop on biomimicry. Did you have a class on it? Did you have an intensive program? I actually have not been able to do any of those immersive workshops. I would love to at some point. They also have a program at ASU, which is a whole graduate master's program. So there's a lot of education out there. I studied this in undergrad as my senior thesis, just to try and explore what it meant to do biomimicry and architecture. And so most of my experience has just been self-taught using all the really wonderful resources available online. And have you come across an opportunity to use that interest in addition to putting together a marvelous workshop? <laughs> yeah, a lot of it, like you're saying, is I think I use it most in our workshops and just exposure with the community as my sort of side passion. I'm chair of the AIA, it's American Institute of Architects Committee on the Environment, which we call COAT for the San Antonio local chapter. And so a lot of our programming, I try to introduce architects to biomimicry and share my passion with them and provide resources. But within architecture and within practice at Lake Flato, I did have one opportunity. It was a competition that we did for a project in Texas. And it was one where we wanted to explore biomimicry as a passive design solution tool because we wanted to create a regenerative, really amazing building that responded to the environment, but having as small of an impact as we could. So we were looking at different ways that we could draw inspiration from the site and from the ecoregion and environment that we would be designing in. So we did actually explore three different major goals for us. One was that we wanted to have a building that had low energy use, really reduced the cooling and heating needs because the environment in Texas can be comfortable with the right passive design strategies. And one of the things we had looked at was termite mounds because they have this ability to regulate their temperature through a variety of strategies. And so that was one thing we proposed was how do we passively heat and cool, drawing inspiration from these existing structures, things that we can find in Texas. We also had looked at material efficiency 
were trying to find ways that we could create a structure that was lightweight, durable, but efficient. So trying to reduce the amount of materials that we're using. And we had seen a lot of inspiration from bird bones because their structure is very optimized to be lightweight, sturdy, but again, they're using as little materials as possible. So drawing some inspiration there. What can you do to absorb that lesson from the bones of birds? One of the things we think about is green steel can be very energy intensive and the industry is switching to timber products and things that naturally sequester carbon. But the challenge is that we can't get rid of concrete altogether or steel. We need these building materials. It's not to say that they're terrible because they do last a long time. There are pros and cons to a lot of the materials that we use. Do we really need, say, all of this concrete in our building? Or can we find ways to use less of it? And so I could think of the bird bone example is that we're still getting the structural integrity that we need, but we're using less concrete. So that's one way I think you could apply that. And this competition we were doing was for an airport. So we thought it would be fun to draw some inspiration from birds. The whole point is that we're providing flight for people. And so how do we draw inspiration from nature in that way? And the other thing we looked at was in general, just habitat restoration and carbon sequestration. Airports, flights, they do contribute to global warming potential. It's very intensive transportation. And so we are thinking, how do we, with all this land, the airports take over, how can we make sure that the habitat that's around can be helping with sequestration? And so prairies in particular are really good at that. And we happen to be in the ecoregion of the Blackland Prairies. Are embodied carbon and carbon sequestration the same thing? Slightly different, but tied together. When we talk about embodied carbon, we're talking about the carbon that's emitted throughout the lifespan of a product or a material. So from extraction of that material from the ground or the resources to transportation to the site where it then is manufactured into whatever product it might be, transportation to your building site, and then operations, putting it, constructing that together, all the way to use of that material, demolition, recycling. The important thing with embodied carbon is that the carbon that's emitted is happening right now. So as the building is happening, as the products are being made. Right. So if we think about carbon over the life cycle of a building or in the next 60 years, this stuff is happening right now. And so that's really important when we think about what we can do today to reduce our carbon impact versus, say, operational carbon, how we operate our buildings, our lights, heating and cooling, that happens over the lifespan of a building. One of the ways that designers and manufacturers are working to reduce embodied carbon is by using the cradle-to-cradle -cradle system. That system is now certified through the Cradle-to-Cradle -cradle Innovation Institute links to which can be found in the show notes. It's a set of design principles that were developed in the 1990s by professors Michael Browngart and William McDonough. Yes, they're looking at what is the most optimal way to reduce embodied carbon, because the thing that you can do is reuse what you already have instead of creating a new material, right? So if we're keeping it within that cycle of reuse, then it's probably one of the more effective ways that we can reduce it as well. Kathy can explain how this has been implemented in carpet manufacturing, 
led by carpet manufacturer Inscape that Janine Benyes worked with. So what is Cradle to Cradle Carpet System? Cradle to Cradle really looks at the full lifespan of a product, how it was manufactured, how it's used, and then how does it return so that it can either be reused or repurposed and it's not landfilled. And so the whole life system of the product has been explored. The carpet industry has done a phenomenal job due to Ray Anderson's pioneering work at Interface to really take on carpet. So there are a number of carpet manufacturers now doing this. Interface, in fact, is one that has a number of practices that apply to their facilities and their sites. They have a foundation now that innovation and prizes awarded to teams that are coming up with new ideas to get out into the marketplace. It's called the Ray of Hope Prize. So a really wonderful from a carpet company. So far, we've spoken about biomimicry and biophilia, living system design, cradle-to-cradle systems, and embodied carbon. Now let's go back and ask Kate about carbon sequestration. According to the U.S. Geologic Survey, carbon sequestration is the process of storing atmospheric carbon dioxide to reduce global climate change. So Kate, Carbon sequestration is really different from embodied carbon. Yeah, that's still in a, a very important piece. And that's part of the reason that we, I would say, as an architecture industry, is pushing towards mass timber buildings, basically engineered wood products. And so carbon sequestration is a part of this overall story because we want to be using materials that naturally sequester carbon and hold it and store it in the products. So a lot of bio-based products like wood or even bamboo, different things. I know there's certain types of insulation that have the ability. So optimizing our low carbon structure, we would want to be using products that sequester carbon. I think the industry is less certain about how much carbon different things sequester. We've also been looking into landscape, for example. By establishing or reinstating a Blackland prairie, you're giving a carbon sink. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things with a lot of these certifications is that they ask you to offset your carbon in some way. So with operational energy and carbon, we usually offset through things like renewable energy. And those two are tied together. But when you're offsetting embodied carbon, it's just a bit different because now we have to think about we've quantified how much embodied carbon our building used. So then how do we offset that? Because carbon sequestration of wood and our building products alone isn't really enough. There's always going to be ways that we contribute to embodied carbon. So we are looking into landscape options. So for example, some carbon offset programs, what you're doing is that you're helping say regenerative farming practice someone that is going to have these great prairies and you're helping them regenerate them. And so that itself is sequestering carbon through the soil, or maybe it's through planting new trees, trying to figure out how you can find ways to offset through, yeah, that sort of carbon sequestration. So are the LEED certifications now requiring a certain level of low carbon emission? With LEED, it's an optional credit you can pursue. It's called a whole building life cycle assessment 
And in terms of lead points, you can get like up to three points or something, but you get one point for just running an analysis. It doesn't matter what the results end up being, but just the act of getting into this process, learning about embodied carbon, it's rewarded in that way. And then depending on how much you reduce your embodied carbon impact from a baseline building, then you get more points from that. So it's not yet required, but it's a really great start for bringing attention, how important quantifying embodied carbon is to the industry and providing incentives to do. And the only one that I've seen that's really required is if you're pursuing what's called a zero carbon certification. It's through the International Living Future Institute. It's something that we are pursuing right now for our office renovation. And for that one, it is required that you're hitting net zero, both operational energy and embodied carbon. So for us, we needed to reduce our embodied carbon by 20%. And then the rest that we've quantified, we need to offset through some sort of green E certification or some of the strategies I was sharing before. So the industry is moving that way, but it's not yet required. It is. And it's moving quickly, it seems to me, from a lack of awareness to a very great awareness are institutions, art museums, colleges, et cetera, now requiring the consideration of these concepts? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the things that we've seen increase is typically the projects we pursue ask for a request for a proposal of sorts. And from my understanding, before embodied carbon wasn't on that. Usually they were asking about operational energy efficiency, but now we are getting requests from our clients that say, this is important to us. Can you provide this service? Can you run a life cycle assessment and help us reduce our embodied carbon? So we're definitely seeing it now as a request from our clients, which is really exciting because that's when we have the most power to influence and make changes when they're also on board. Yes, that is such a positive thing that to hear that change. So some new buildings are emphasizing their use of daylight to light the building, to reduce energy consumption and improve the quality of the work living environment. That's something you're interested in. Are you drawing upon old ways of design, looking to history for the way this was done before the advent of air conditioning and light bulbs and things, or looking at new techniques? Yeah, that's a great question. We definitely do a combination, I'd say. I, I do a lot of daily analysis for our projects and like you've mentioned, we do it because it's important to have good quality daylight for individuals in the space, but it's also a way that we can reduce energy consumption by providing good quality daylight and not needing to turn our lights on, for example, all the time. And so when we run these analysis, we, we typically start with what our best intuition is for how many windows we need, what sort of shading is needed. And we do pull inspiration oftentimes from passive or vernacular strategies when we're applying rules of thumb about how long does that overhang need to be because you don't want to have all this really intense direct sunlight and glare that can be not great, right? For overheating purposes, maybe just for the quality of daylight, but you also want to be able to provide the good quality daylight, which means figuring out how long your overhangs need to be, 
we're looking at things like clerestory windows, north facing, skylights. There's a lot of different options that you can do to provide good quality daylight. But a lot of what we're doing is using software to analyze those results. There is a program called Climate Studio, and that's where we do a lot of our daylight analysis. And this allows us, it's similar to embodied carbon, but allows us to quantify with actual daylight metrics how well it's performing. And in that case, again, we're still testing these passive strategies, these rules of thumbs, but then we're also considering things like what type of glazing are we using? Because there's different quality glazing, some that help reflect light, some let it in. There's different visible light transmittance for how much quality of the daylight you want. We're also exploring things like dynamic glazing, which is when essentially during certain points of day when light is coming in, if it's too intense, the glazing will apply a tint or it has some sort of more active approach to addressing daylight. So there's a really interesting combinations right now of these great passive strategies, but also more technology, even automatic blinds that sense, you know, how much daylight and glare is coming in. So there's a good mix of strategies we can use for good quality daylight. You've talked about programs that you're using. <laughs> Are these things that you learned in your college education? Did you come to your job already knowing how to use these programs? At CU, we did have a daylight class, which was really helpful. That's where I learned the basics of why daylight and good quality daylight is important and how to quantify it. So I was introduced to it in undergrad and then in some of the programs too. Now they've actually simplified it, even though what I described sounded very complicated, <laughs> but it has gotten easier. So the programs that I use in my job now are a bit simplified, but even then a lot of it is either self-taught or maybe you're working with your peers. So with extreme weather events occurring more frequently, what other design tools do you think we need to employ to reduce their catastrophic effect on homes, neighborhoods, and the planet? Small question, nothing <laughs> big. Yeah, yeah, a very, very complicated one. Um, we, this is a very timely question because Lake Plato has a, what we call our investigations program, and it allows our designers to propose a topic that they're really interested in and then spend some time during their work day, essentially researching what this topic of interest is. And I applied this past year on essentially resiliency. So I, myself and two other of my colleagues, we proposed that we wanted to better understand your exact question. It's basically how do we as architects make better informed decisions just in order to figure out how do we respond to climate? How do we understand how our climate's changing? What do we do with all these natural disasters that feel like they're occurring way more than they were before, right? And how do we even predict what might happen in the future? And so that's actually something we're looking into right now, but we have found a ton of great resources for how to do this. And so some of the things we've found is that there's now a lot of data on future climate impacts. And so not only do we look what is happening right now and how do we respond to that, but how do we respond to future impacts? 
And there's different tools that we have found that you can study this. So for example, there's one that's called, it's literally called What Will Climate Feel Like in 60 Years? And it's an online tool that's produced by the University of Maryland. And it's this essentially a world map of sorts. And you can click on different cities. And within that, they'll tell you what will the city feel like in 60 years? And it relates it back to another climate. So for example, San Antonio, where I'm out of, it's going to feel like Mexico, essentially on the border of where we currently are. And just describing that it's going to be a lot drier. We may see extreme heat waves. And so it allows you to think more about, okay, maybe it's hard to understand what future might look like, but we can better understand what is this city near us already feel like and how can we better understand that? And There's other tools like Climate Explorer that shows you future and climate trends, things like how will rainfall change, heating and cooling degrees, days needed, a lot of really interesting stuff. And it's made in this really great visual way that's easy to understand. So we're trying to find tools that allow us by this, bring it up to our clients, understand things are going to get hotter How do we respond to that architecturally through passive design strategies? Maybe we're having conversations with our mechanical engineers, just trying to bring the conversation up so that we can say, here's what we've noticed. Here's what we want to address and how are we going to do this? There's also a tool called risk factor, risk factor, and it looks at things like flooding, fires, earthquakes, maybe. It's basically, again, you put in your zip code and it tells you all the stuff about whatever location you enter. So there's a ton of really great tools out there. That's just an example of three. And the also the AIA has come out with some really great resilient process guides. It's called the AIA Resilient Project Process Guide. And it's a really great resource for basically how do you integrate resilience and climate adaptation into your projects. So part of what we're trying to research is after you've collected this information, what do you do with it? What does that process look like? Taking some of these things into your concept design and designing throughout the whole process and working with different consultants. And so that's a summary of all that we've been researching right now. A pretty sophisticated state of affairs in terms of the predictions of the future. How many different layers of expertise does it take to come up with a sustainable and resilient building? It really takes a whole team of very knowledgeable people. I don't think architects alone can take on such a big task. And one of the things that we like to do at Lake Flato is called an integrated design workshop. And I think it's really critical to creating any sort of net zero, net positive design. We bring all these different consultants together right at the start. So whether that's during concept or schematic design, and that could be your mechanical, plumbing, electrical engineers, landscape, your civil engineers, structural, maybe different specialists. We've got sometimes ecologists there. It really depends on what the goals are of the project. But the idea is that you bring all these different specialties together right at the start so that you can pose this really challenging question. We want to be net zero energy or we want to have zero embodied carbon. And you have all these different specialists who come together and can help achieve that goal in so many different directions. And I do think it really takes a full team to make these things happen. It takes all different diverse perspectives 
lives. And so it does take a lot of different people at the table. Kathy, you've been brought in to help builders achieve LEED certifications for their buildings. In Austin, you worked on the Austin Central Library. I noticed it was built on a brownfield. A brownfield is a polluted piece of earth. And they took it and built a platinum LEED certified building. So how did you integrate the concepts that we've spoken about now into that building or help them do that? I was not the original lead consultant on that project. I came onto that project right as it was approaching the end of schematic design. A lot of the foundational design ideas were in place and were being refined. And I really saw my role more with that project to help the team think through the kinds of stories that perhaps were being lost to the bigger stories. The nature kind of story associated with the library and the ups and downs and all the intricacies of the way the building interacted with the site became a story that wasn't getting as much traction in terms of its impact on human health. The fact that enticing a person to walk and explore versus taking elevators and doing these other kinds of things was one of those stories I tried to help bring to the fore. Really post-occupancy, I worked with the city to do some of the interpretive signage to celebrate more of those strategies, the mesquite flooring. It wasn't me that made the decision to use the mesquite flooring, but to help really tell the story about how important this really vilified tree in Texas is because we associate it with pasture land that we want to use for grazing in certain parts of Texas, mesquites thrive and their seeds are being spread and they come up and it's a rancher against the tree. But it's in terms of the properties of the wood, it's not only a beautiful wood, it's one of our most durable woods that we can find in Texas. And so harvesting one of the smaller you know, growing trees that we have, there's actually a really ingenious way to salvage as much of the usable wood as possible by, by cutting against the grain. And so you get these end cuts um, that are comprise a great deal of the flooring inside the library. It was just one of the stories that I helped to tell. I would say as a lead consultant, though, one of the other things that I did was to maybe when we were looking at innovation credits, there were some really easy to obtain types of credits because we went above and beyond in certain areas. But where did we want the public to know to know more? Some other kinds of things that, again, that weren't quite getting the same visibility. But if we actually got them in the rating and verified, now they become more widely available to the public as they look at the case study for this project. So really helping to suss through some of those kinds of things. Like we have cradle-to-cradle carpet systems in the project. And that was one of the opportunities to make sure that we pursued that credit over perhaps something else that already had a good bit of visibility already there. In the four years or so since the project was completed, have you had the opportunity to go back and look at it and see its impact on the community from being a Brandfield site to now a library that is alive in some way? Yeah, the site had so much going for it already. Like location is everything. It's just, it's really a gem in the city. Let's move from the specific project to the involvement in Austin's project to become a biophilic city. 
What was your involvement in that? And what does it mean? And how is it manifest? It really takes me back to the Austin Central Library, because as I started to tell the story of the library as a way to think of the li- the library outside of what a lead case study, for example, might share, was what a catalyzing type of project it really needs to be seen as for the city of Austin. This is something we should aspire to with all of our projects, places that really allow us to connect up, right? We want our cities to feel highly networked for pedestrians and bicyclists and to have nature corridors and to have all of these things. And the library really does that in a beautiful way, but it should just be the start. Like, where are the spurs that come off of this? How can you now start to envision catalyzing something similar of appropriate scale where you are conceiving your project, right? What does that mean? And so that was one of the ways in which I really saw the library being one of the cases we should make to the Biophilic Cities organization to consider Austin, because look what we're doing, look what we aspire to do. And so it was in part of that application and the article that I wrote about the library, all they all coincided at that time. And for me, Biophilic Cities is a way to expand the conversation beyond the project, the skin of the building or the boundaries of its site to thinking about its context and what it means to the community and how we see it playing a role outside of just its occupants and the clients that are funding it to being a really integral part to the health and vitality of life in the city and the life that it brings to the city. We've talked about the city and your systemic thinking about the role of biophilia in civic projects and private projects. There are two buildings in the South Texas that have recently been upgraded, revised, gotten the platinum lead certification that the library did. Is there an opportunity now to influence this being done on a larger scale rather than one by one? I think there are a number of considerations that relate to biophilia and biomimicry, but repurposing of buildings wouldn't necessarily equate them with being biophilic or having incorporated any kind of biomimetic strategies. I think really some of the relationship there is that they are balancing our growth strategies. So degrowth is a whole movement unto itself right now, is that we can accommodate our needs without spreading our footprint. We have to start to think about degrowth strategies as we we contain our needs to the infrastructure that's already there and even questioning whether or not growth of any type is even necessary. Or if we're doing it, how do we contain it to our kind of hyper local areas versus extracting someplace far away and then bringing it to us. And so to look at the existing building stock and repurposing it is a really fantastic way to do this. A few different systems in nature fascinate me, spiderwebs being one of them, but all spiderwebs do is employ existing infrastructure, right? Everything is scaffold for a spiderweb. And so it's really just a mindset about, um, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to reuse everything the way its initial intentions were, but what opportunities can we reimagine for these places? And I think our imagination is one of the most powerful tools that we possess. One of the other reasons that we really have to entertain this is I might have shared this information with you earlier, but the weight 
of all of the man-made systems on the planet now outweigh that of all the biomass on the planet. And concrete as a material, as one singular material is fast approaching being a material that will soon weigh more than all of the biomass on the planet. Um, Reusing our existing building stock or existing infrastructure is really vital to the preservation of life systems and biodiversity on the planet. We aren't the only inhabitants here. Kate, too, is looking at our human place on the planet and offers additional perspectives. We tend to take a lot from the environment and we don't necessarily give back. And you could consider that a parasitic relationship. And I think the way we need to move is more of a mutualistic one where we're, we do, of course, have to take from our environment and use resources and energy and water, but we need to figure out ways to really give back to it as well and create more than just this sort of neutral relationship, but one that's mutual and giving back. And I do think that it's going to take a mindset shift from the industry to really consider the environment is also one of our clients and to make it a priority because we really can't move forward without putting an emphasis on how important it is for us to consider the environment and a lot of our and our decision making if we want to reduce our potential impact on climate change and things like that. Thank you, Kate Sector and Kathy Zarsky for speaking with us. In subsequent programs in this series, we're going to look at how biomimicry has developed from its early day-to-day integration to now the efforts of major corporations like Ford and Microsoft and cities like Amsterdam and countries like Saudi Arabia on developments that are not only sustainable and resilient, but regenerative. We'll speak to a city official and her aspiring counterpart, about how they're working to protect the health and safety of their citizens in the face of changing environmental conditions. And to local activists who almost 50 years ago introduced sustainable practices to rural communities and where those efforts are today. All of these discussions are to provide fodder for your thoughts, discussions, and action. You can write to us at Twitter at L-W-I-T-F underscore pod. Please let us know if this podcast led to discussions with your friends, family, or colleagues, book clubs, or community groups. You can also find us on Instagram at L-W-I-T-F. Thank you for listening. For the next several months, you can expect to find a new episode every month on the second Saturday of the month. Subscribe to Living Well into the Future wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Please give us a five-star rating while you're there so other people can find us. You can find out more information about our guests and links to the entities we mentioned on the Living Well into the Future tab on the Berkshire Ollie website, berkshireollie.org. That's berkshireolli.org. You'll find this in future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play Living Well into the Future podcast.
Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali, and WTBR-FM 89.7 FM, Pittsfield, for their support. This podcast is produced by Julie Kopenheffer. Thanks to our production team and our intern, Owen Brown. Our music is written and performed by Michael Kopenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rossow. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR, Berkshire Alley, or the LWITF production team.